WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today's episode, we're here with Jen Fry, who's talking to us about sports geography. Jen has actually coached a national championship game for volleyball. Hi, Jen. Welcome. May you please tell us about yourself and your research? Hey, thank you all for having me on here. So my name is Jen Fry, and so it's kind of a twofold aspect that intertwined to go into my research. So the first thing is um, I'm a PhD student in geography at Michigan State, and sport geography is really what I focus on. I look at the racial experiences of professional black volleyball players in Europe, and sport geography really is a sub-sub-sub-discipline. Nowhere in the U.S. or even the world can you get a master's, PhD, any type of terminal degree in sport geography. Usually it is the side hobby of different uh, disciplines. So I also own a company called Gen Fry Talks. Gen Fry Talks is a social justice firm that focuses on educating and empowering those within athletics through an anti-racist lens. So kind of both of those intertwine within my work on diversity, equity, and education. Hi, Jen. Thanks for joining us today. It's really cool that you're studying sports geography. I've actually never heard of that subdiscipline before. Can you give our audience a little more details about what sports geography is? What exactly are you studying in sports geography? Yeah, that's a great question. So geography as a discipline is interesting because it's far ranging. You have people in geography that study fields, dunes, dirt, rock, so many different things. And then you also have people that study humans like I do. You also have people that do like medical geography. I think COVID-19 has been a perfect example of geography of studying the patterns of where people live and how it's transmitted and all that good stuff. And so with sport geography, I study people, not dirt. So I study their experiences and how uh, place and space affect them. So within geography, you have a few main themes. Um, location is one and place is the other. So if you think of location, it is your address, right? 444 Main Street. That is the location. It's a specific thing. You have relative and absolute. Absolute would be, you know, longitude, latitude. Relative would be, you know, my 444 Main Street, which is across the street from the 7-Eleven. And so what then I study is another theme of geography, which is place. And that is kind of what we give to something, how it makes us feel. So we talk about like a volleyball gym, right? The location is 444 Main Street, but we give it this aspect of being a volleyball gym and how it makes us feel. And so many times within geography, how place makes athletes feel, especially at black athletes, is really not talked about. If you look in geography, there's only a few big names that actually have books out about it. Bale and Rooney are really the two main names that have written about it. You have Natalie Koch that kind of did an edited volume of different articles, but you have two big names and both of them are white men. And so you really don't have any of the experiences specifically of Black athletes and how place and space affect them whenever they're playing. And what we talk about with space is when you have people there and how that makes you feel. I think we can all think about when we've been in a place that the space makes us feel very uncomfortable. And you, you know, if you're a white male, you might be like, oh, this is a great party to be at. And me as a Black female might be like, um, I'm really uncomfortable. And so just thinking about how place and space affect Black female volleyball players when they are in Europe, when they're overseas, wherever they're at, and what does that look like? Like, what are their racial experiences based on place and space? Because 
they're always going to be different, especially when we add that aspect of gender and identity into it. And so as a sports geographer, I really study how place and space affect Black female athletes. Over my time of hosting the Sci-Files, I've always been curious about how do we quantify emotions. Not everyone feels the same way, even if they have similar genders and identities and backgrounds or even the same location and place. How do you quantify how people feel and then come to conclusions based off the differences of their individuality? I think the main thing is I'm not trying to quantify it, right? I do qualitative research. And so I think the issue when we talk about quantifying it is we're drilling it down to kind of these numbers. And when you try and drill stuff down to numbers and say, okay, we want to quantify this data to really understand how it makes people feel. I think the first thing when we talk about that is we have to ask who's making the questions and who's looking at the data and who gets to decide if these feelings and things are valid. Because I think the thing is when you quantify something, you're trying to take the emotion and the context out of it. And with the stuff I research, you can't do that, right? Many people have said, well, do you also interview white women who play volleyball in Europe to see the similarities or differences in your participants? And the answer is absolutely not. I have no interest in doing that because then what you can start to have is this tug and pull of whose experience is valid. I interviewed 18 black women. If I interview 18 white women, And they say, oh, I was in Romania and I had a phenomenal experience. Everyone loved me. I was treated great and blah, 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 blah. Then what does it mean for the Black participant of my study who literally said a girl turned to her and spit in her face? So I think, you know, when we ask this aspect of quantifying stuff, we're trying to take emotion and context out of it. And we can't do that. My emotions, I situate, so one of the theories I use is Black feminist theory. And Black feminist theory is literally centering Black women's experiences. That's the only thing that I center is 100% Black women's experiences. Because what we've seen in research is Black women, their voices are silenced, their experiences are belittled. It's like, well, are you sure you experienced that? Well, what did you do? I don't know. And the amount of mental gymnastics people pretty much do in order to negate a Black woman's experiences shows us clear in the literature and research why there really isn't that much, especially, I mean, in sport geography, there really isn't anything about Black female. There's some stuff about Maybe about African women soccer players, but not about especially Black women volleyball players from the U.S. And so what we've seen in research is that Black women's experiences are thought to be either like white women or Black male. So whenever they talk about Black athletes, majority of the time it's about Black males. Whenever they talk about women's athletics, it's about white women. And Black women don't get their experiences. So I think when we talk about quantifying it, like again, like why? Because Black women's experiences, that's why I do qualitative research, is Black women's experiences need to be lifted And all contexts and all aspects need to be taken in to tell this story. Because if you try and peel it down to kind of quantifiable numbers, many times the context, emotion, feelings, and all that stuff is going to be taken out. And if it's taken out, we're not going to get the real stories and substance that we want here. You bring up really great points about how the voices specifically of Black women aren't being represented when these publications in sports geography are being published Typically, it's only being generalized to women athletes. When you're performing these interviews, how are you getting to know these female Black athletes? Are you meeting them in person in Europe, like how you mentioned earlier in this interview? Or are these all being performed via Zoom? And how do you really capture that emotion? That's a good question. So like I said before, I was a college volleyball coach. I was a college volleyball athlete. So a lot of these women are my community. They're my friends. So my path to a PhD has been very different from others. So I came in with two masters 
And I came in with this experience of coaching for 15 years. And I said, I want to research this topic. Who's going to allow me to do it and do it the way I want to? Because I think many times, and I'm not sure if y'all's PhD journeys, it's kind of you come in, you're like, okay, I want to work with this person because they've done research I like. And now let me kind of develop my research question. And for me, it was literally like, here is this data set of 120 black female volleyball players I have. Here is a research question I want to do. Who's going to let me do it? And so geography was kind. And we were kind of like, we're all going to figure this out <laughs> together of what this looks like. And so because I was already in the community, um, so like I said, my, my journey has been different. So before I even did my comps or my proposal defense, I actually have already done my research. So my comps were in August and I'm still figuring out when I'm going to do my proposal defense. And I sent out surveys at the end of May and I had all of my interviews transcribed by mid-August. So literally before my comps, I had already all of my interviews transcribed and ready to go. So I've had a very different path. And so my original goal pre-COVID was to kind of do this tour of Europe and get to interview them in person, get to watch them play. Because many times when you go overseas to play, your friends and family might not be able to get to see you. So there's something about having fans in the arena getting to watch you play and cheer you on. So I wanted to go in and see them and meet them in person and get to interview them. COVID, as we know, destroyed all that. So I did Zoom interviews. And I think, you know, I'm looking at a lot of similar dissertations and some of them had 30 minutes, 45 minute interviews. Mine were two and a half to three hours long because a lot of it was us catching up with each other, talking about the volleyball world, coaching fires, hires, teams, how we think people are doing and all of that good stuff that you get to chat about when there's a level of trust, respect, and knowing each other coming into it. I didn't have to hunt down participants, right? I'd have a participant who was like, oh my gosh, this was such an amazing experience. I'm going to immediately put you on a group chat with 10 others to see if they would like to be interviewed. And so for me, it was just really enjoyable to get to talk to them because it didn't feel like research. It felt like I was talking to my friends about topics that we love. And so that was the best part about it is, um, you know, just getting to hear the perspectives of friends that maybe others don't know about. Like I said, I had the story of the the woman being spit on by a Romanian kid. I mean, I had another story of a young lady who said her knee was hurting and they told her in Italy that they had brought the doctor to come look at her knee. And she said, I got this phone call at like midnight, which is normal in Italy. And it was this whispered voice telling me that I didn't meet with a doctor. I actually met with a dentist and that I need to go and have an actual doctor look at my knee. Or another young lady who told me um, that her team, I can't even think of what country it was, didn't like their coach. So they poisoned him trying to kill him. So like I got, I felt like deeper stories because I literally knew the people I was interviewing or we had a common friend. And it wasn't a lot of time of me having to build the trust and getting superficial conversation, but we were able to get deep down to the nitty gritty. And it was, it was just awesome. I completely resonate with that. A lot of our interviews are people we know or people that are suggested or recommended to us. I think it's really nice that you spend so much time getting to actually know the person behind the athlete. Now, something you said caught my attention. You were saying overseas players. Are all of your interviewees people who come from America and go play in Europe or are these people native players? I'm wondering if the dynamic is different for them in Europe if they're actually born in Europe versus if they come from America and move to somewhere else. So the reason why I picked Europe was because currently, and I'm going to put asterisk next, asterisk next to it and I'll explain, but currently there's no professional teams in the United States, in the continental United States for volleyball. There are some excellent ones in Puerto Rico, but none in the continental U.S. 48 even actually in Alaska or in Hawaii. 
And so because of that, there's really nowhere to for them to play professionally once they get done with their college eligibility. So that's why it's about understanding their experience in Europe is because it's more like of saying, I just want to understand where these professional athletes play, what their experience is like. Um, when I first started, I had said overseas. But then once I started getting the interviews and I had a, a lot of people who played in Brazil or Peru, all over Asia, that it was just, and you understand with research, right? It was such a wide net to cast. And so once I spoke to everyone, I realized that every single one of the 18 participants had played in Europe at least once. And so that was the big common denominator of why I look at that, why I'm looking at them playing in Europe is because we don't have professional leagues within the continental 48 states. I say that there's an asterisk because there's a organization called Athletes Unlimited Pro Sports. And what they are doing is that they are starting professional teams within the U.S. They do, they did volleyball, lacrosse, softball, and now they're doing basketball for women. And it's kind of run by the athletes. And so what they do, especially um, they did for volleyball, I didn't watch other sports, is that essentially every week after they played, they'd have a draft. And so maybe you had like 50 people there. And then everyone was picked for a team. And then once that week was over, whoever it was the highest point getters would then to make their next team for the next week. So just a kind of a different idea. The problem with that is that it was a really short season because the one thing they can't do is really affect these professional athletes' money overseas. I'm not sure how much they paid with AU Sports, but overseas, some of the top athletes can make a million dollars, 500000 I I know athletes I made for like a three-month season, 125000 So they could not affect that professional money. And I think the thing also was because it was in COVID, they were able to be in the bubble. In different countries, there are different lengths of seasons. And so sometimes an athlete will play in Puerto Rico for three months, then go to Sweden, then go to Peru, right? And it's a very migrant sport compared to other ones. And so because of that, I think that AU Volleyball had picked like this sweet spot also with the layer of COVID. So I'm very interested to see what they're going to do these upcoming years. And then also there's another league coming out called LOVB, and they're trying to have a professional league. So, but again, I don't think they can compete with the professional money that folks make overseas. Like you had mentioned earlier in the interview, you've also coached for 15 years. How has your coaching experience informed the way that you spoke with the athletes and gathered their experiences? Well, I think it's the fact that we we have this common like foundation or knowledge. College volleyball is a small community and then black women within it is even smaller. We already had some trust because, like I said, it was friends I reached out to. And also, I kind of started getting people to know what I was doing. So when I developed this data set of 100, 125 Black female volleyball players, I literally had contacted people before I was even in my PhD. I was like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this research. I don't know really what I'm going to do it on. Can I collect your information so that when I do finally do it, I can contact you? And so I had that list of names already. But I mean, the the playing part, that maybe helped a little, but the coaching part helped in just me previously developing my network so that I wasn't starting from ground zero. Because I've seen some people who study sports and they have no knowledge of the sport really or how to get into it and how to contact their participants. I had the opposite where I was like, okay, I need to stop asking people because I'm going to have too many people to interview. I just need to get this done. So I would say the coaching part was 15 years of creating the community I was going to be be interviewing. Jen, you mentioned how transient professional volleyball is. Can you give us your thoughts on geographical aspect on college sports right now? Yeah, you know, college sports right now is so fascinating, Chelsea. 
I, I want to do a ton of research on it, but so essentially when I coached, if you were a college athlete, you would have to get your coach to release you to go play wherever you wanted, right? So it was all in the coach's power. Then about three years ago, they added this thing called the transfer portal, meaning that athletes did not have to get their release from their coaches. They can just put their name in the portal anytime they wanted. So literally, you could be an athlete playing midseason and say, you know what? I don't like my experience here. I'm going to put myself in the transfer portal and still keep playing. So it just caused like a lot of ruckus and people talking about it. But I liked it because it gave the athletes ownership. One of the big caveats, though, is once you put your name in that transfer portal, your scholarship didn't have to be honored the rest of the year, right? So once that semester is over, if you said you're in the transfer portal, it didn't have to be honored. So I think what that causes some athletes to realize, okay, do I want to transfer? Because if I put myself in this transfer portal, I might be leaving this full scholarship not knowing what people will give me. So the transfer portal has just made, especially with COVID and athletes getting another year to play, has just made college athletes even more transient than it was before. Of athletes maybe went to one D1 school, then transferred to another one, and now they got finished, and now they're going to do their fifth year at a third school. It's been so fascinating. And then add on the layers of the NIL, which is the name, image, and likeness. And that is essentially athletes getting paid by organizations for their name, image, and likeness. So if Nike wants to use my picture on something, they can pay me. Where before, athletes could not receive anything except for their scholarship. And so that was causing a lot of issues, especially in like football and basketball, because you know schools would be making hundreds of millions on this person's jersey, but, not be, but the athlete wouldn't get any money from it. So it's really given athletes a lot more that they can have than they previously can have. And then on top of the transient aspect of the college athletes, now we see that these conferences are going back crazy. Oh my gosh, you know, before it was you had X amount, you had these conferences and it was pretty stable. Maybe one team would leave, maybe another team would leave, but now it's just everyone's leaving. And so I'm not sure if anyone knows about the Berlin Conference of like 1886, where essentially Europe brought Africa to the table and sliced it up like a piece of pie. I was like, you get this, you get this, you get that. That's kind of what we're seeing is now these grabs by these conferences for these teams. And so it's fascinating because like you see with the SEC, so there's a power five, which is the five top conferences, the Pac-12, the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12. And so Texas and Oklahoma have been part of the Big 12 forever. Well, now they're going to the SEC. And so you see all these different teams that are moving and grooving. Well, right now there's a huge thing going on. James Madison University was in the CAA forever, and they decided they wanted to go to Sunbelt. Well, what they did was essentially they're trying to say they're going to leave next year. A lot of these other teams are going to leave like in 24, 25, but most likely they're going to leave before that. But that's when they're saying they're leaving. JMU is like, we're leaving next year. Well, there's a conference bylaw in the CAA that says that if you leave, before X amount of time, then none of your teams can play in the conference championships, which is a huge deal because conference championships are happening right now. So for instance, JMU volleyball is ranked number one in the CAA. And if the um, CAA holds on to this, the JMU cannot play in the conference championships, which means they cannot go to the NCAAs. So it's a really big thing going on with JMU and the CAA. I feel like it's kind of like a game of chicken of who's going to flinch first. But the only people who lose in this are the student athletes. So I think if we look at from a geographical aspect, like all of these conferences and these teams are moving. And really at the end, I think the athletes are the ones that are going to suffer because you have teams in Florida, like Central Florida, who are now playing the Big 12. And that's an issue because every single pretty much team they play, they have to fly. Every single one. Because the Big 12 is West Virginia, 
TCU, they added Houston, they added UCF, Texas Tech is in there. So they're going to have to fly every single time they want to play someone in conference. And so I just think about what that means for geography before you would see these teams in the conferences that are very regional. And that has just completely disappeared. And it's now pretty much all of the U.S. So it's so fascinating. I can definitely relate to a lot of what you're saying there. I remember when I was an undergrad over at Florida International University, while I was there, I was also a student athlete as a part of the cross country and track and field team. And during my tenure there, we made the switch from the Sunbelt Conference to Conference USA. And unfortunately, there were very few actual competitions where we met with different conference competitors, and it made growing as an athlete difficult. Funny enough, all of the schools that FIU left behind in Sunbelt is now becoming the conference that's considered better than Conference USA, with Conference USA now having to recruit FCF schools now, pretty much putting them at the bottom of all the FBS schools. As much as I love to talk about athletics, I wanted to touch back on your research really quickly. When it comes to the work that you're reporting and the experiences of Black female athletes that you're sharing, what do you envision the future of research to look like as they take these experiences into account? You know, I, I think if, A, we talk about athletes and or people within athletics, more of a humanizing aspect, what you'll tend to see is like, okay, we want to interview these athletes. We want to survey them. But it's not kind of a humanizing aspect. You know, I think another thing is that uplifting the voices of the folks that have been silenced, right? I think that's the main thing is that many times we don't realize, like, it's not that these marginalized groups don't want to talk, it's that they've been silenced. And what ways can we do to uplift their voice and to make it a voice that just has much influence and powers other voices? Because what you'll tend to see is like, well, you know, they're a smaller group and, you know, maybe they have similar experiences. And their experiences are just shut down. So I really want their voices to be uplifted more. And I think the next thing is just to have more researchers of color and people of various identities doing the research, right? There's been just way too many times that the research of people of color, LGBT folks, is being done by people that is not of that identity. And so I think it's important to ask, why aren't people of those identities doing the research? What are the constraints? What are the obstacles that are stopping him from doing that type of research? I would like to know if you were able to find out from these other Black athletes if there were any experiences that they were able to partake in that made the place feel actually good for them and if they enjoyed it. I mean, honestly, I didn't focus on that because my number one goal is safety. When I want Black female volleyball players to read my dissertation, to read my results, I want them to look at these are the ways that they can be kept safe. I mean, I think that there's a lot of great stories of, you know, fun experiences Black volleyball play players had over there. But the issue is, is that the things that will keep them safe aren't really talked about. And so it's not just an aspect of, again, it's like what, what's being centered. And for me, it's being centered as safety. And so I want these Black athletes to read these results and to say, okay, this is stuff maybe I didn't think about, right? When, I, when I'm going over my contract, that needs to all to be in English so that I understand, okay, these are things I can ask for. These are things I expect of my agent. These are things that I can expect when I'm traveling. Most likely I'm going to be by myself. And, you know, one of the themes that came up unexpectedly was this idea of Black women being sex workers. And one woman said that she was followed into an elevator into, almost to her apartment because someone thought she was a sex worker. So it's not about positiveness. It's about, like, what's my biggest thing? And it's, it's to understand the racial experiences through a geographical lens but also the ways that I can assist them in having knowledge to be kept safe. 
I mean, you're right. At the end of the day, one of our biggest priorities should be ensuring that our black female athletes have a safe environment to work in as well as perform in without feeling like they'll be targeted at some point during their experience. There's not a doubt that the work that you're doing is incredibly impactful. Once you've completed your PhD in sports geography, what are the plans for the future for you? Are you interested in continuing work in academia when it comes to publishing these important aspects and perspectives? Or are you going to go full-time with your company, Jen Fry Talks, and help share the message across the nation? I mean, so far right now, you know, it's I've seen how tenure track stuff just, just brutalizes Black women. I've never really had the interest in being tenure track. I'll be honest, I am in my third year of my PhD. This is the first year, first semester I've ever had to TA a class. And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is tougher than I thought. And literally, um, one of the questions in my comps was to develop a syllabus. And I'd never done one before. So I developed it. I just figured it out. And so one of my committee members was like, so tell me, why did you put X, Y, and Z in the order you did? And I was like, honestly, Alan, I said, this is my first time ever developing a syllabus. This is tough. And I was also like, I like to apologize to all of the faculty who I've ever asked a month before the class if the syllabus was ready, because now I know absolutely a lot because of everything that goes into literally constructing a syllabus. So for me, I right now, I do my company full time as well as do my PhD. So it would be continue working with my company. And then also, I mean, I'd like to publish some stuff. But I think, you know, when we think about publishing of the constraints that are put on it, the reviewers, who's reviewing it. I like to look at stuff from a more practical lens because I have the experience of being on the floor where else I think a lot of researchers want to have that theoretical aspect of it. And so um, also theor- like the difference in language used in the articles of how you have to be very theoretical in articles versus very practical with the verbiage you use. So for me, I mean, maybe publishing some stuff, but really just working with the athletes, facilitating workshops and re- doing my company is still what I want to do. Well, I know whatever you end up doing, it's going to be really great and you're going to impact many people. I think it's really awesome that this is what you chose to do for your thesis because it really resonates with the kind of person you are and you're able to connect so well with the people that you're talking to. As a woman of color, I really connect to what you said about not wanting to do the tenure track. It's actually my first semester TAing as well. So good luck to you and thanks a lot for being on the Sci-Files. Thank you for having me, friends. I really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.